You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Matthew 7, 12 to 29. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered by thorn bushes? or figs from thorn bushes. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built, his rock on, who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished, saying these, finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribe. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Oh, thanks be to God. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Let me pray, and we'll reflect on this passage for a bit. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that you would speak now to us, your church. We're weary people who come into this room with all kinds of baggage. We're busy. We're distracted. We're tempted. Would you speak to us clearly that we might see Jesus Christ, and in seeing him, find hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I stated, we're coming to the, we are at the very end, actually, of the Sermon on the Mount, this very famous sermon of Jesus. We could call it, or others have called it, a kingdom manifesto. Uh, He started by describing who was blessed in his kingdom. Those who actually lack are those who actually are blessed in his kingdom. And then he moved to talk about the ways in which those who have lack and yet still love and serve are the ones who bear true blessing in this kingdom. He dealt with all kinds of serious sins like anger and lust and retaliation. He 
explored and unpacked and fought through uh, ways in which relationships will work out in his kingdom and what they ought to look like in his kingdom. Marriages, things like taking oaths, our relationship to our enemies. And he also gave us wisdom over general piety, what it means to be faithful to and loyal to his kingdom, what it's going to look like in his kingdom administration. And we've come now to verse 12 where he essentially sums up not only what he's been trying to say, but what he is saying that he has built upon the entire laws, the entire law and the prophets that had come before, what has often been referred to as the golden rule, whatever, whatever you would wish others to do unto you, you also ought to do to them. This is sort of a capstone and a summary, not only of his teaching, but his teaching as it is rooted in the law of God revealed in a time of old. As we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wraps up this sermon, as any great preacher would, with a conclusion. And he has a great concern or fear, and he wants to issue a warning to you and to me and to anyone who would pick up and read this sermon for years to come. He wants us to be aware of a very serious human dilemma, that it is very, very easy for us to be uh, educated beyond our capacity. It's very, very easy for us to be educated beyond what we are capable to handle. This is a very real human problem, and you and I know it. There are things in life that you know you ought to do, that there are no, matter, there are no facts needed to, to put into your brain which will convince you to do them, and yet still, for a variety of reasons, you will not do them. Maybe it's something like sunscreen, a personal favorite of mine. You know you ought to wear this in the sun, and yet some of you are mostly just me, we'll still find excuses not to put it on. Looking for any internet article you can find that says it's not good for you, the reality of the fact is I know it's good for me and I won't wear it. Uh, things like texting and driving, eight hours of sleep, proper diet, if I haven't caught you in one yet, flossing. Um, there's no matter of facts that you need to convince you that flossing is good for you. We all know it. Our dentists have told us this repeatedly. And yet, uh, I hope I'm not the only one who has now grown mature enough that I no longer lie to my dentist. I just right away say, nope, I haven't been flossing. Listen, our world is filled with data. And the more educated you are, the more you start to take in that data. You and I both know how toxic <laughs> you know, phones and social media are for our health. And yet, we can't put them down. We can be educated beyond our obedience beyond our capacity, beyond our ability to move forward. And when that happens, when that happens, when we sin not just out of ignorance, we're in a very, very difficult and tough place. Our hearts can quickly grow hardened. And as Jesus comes to the end of his sermon, he realizes he's just given us things which could become for us teachings of great judgment upon our life. We could be out-educated beyond our capacity, and this will be detrimental. And he wants to unfold for us what true and good spirituality looks like. What does is, what is proper and right spirituality look like in his kingdom? How can we ensure we're not just being educated by facts, but these facts are doing something to us? What does true spirituality look like in his kingdom? And he's going to give us markers of true spirituality, a sort of a call to examine our spirituality. He's going to tell us to examine first our destination, then he's going to tell us to examine our influences, 
and then finally examine our foundation. And as we examine these three things, he's hoping that we will practice true spirituality, that our education won't outstrip our virtue and our ability and capacity to obey. So this is what we're going to look at. Jesus is going to call us at the end to examine the destination our life's on, examine the influences over our lives, and finally examine the foundation our life's on. The outline is fairly straightforward from this passage. So first, if you want to know that you're practicing true spirituality, life-giving spirituality, the spirituality of his kingdom, where people flourish, where good, good is found and tasted, Jesus says, first, you must examine your destination. Well, where do we see this? We see this in these wonderful illustrations. Jesus first gives us in verse 13 and 14, he gives us two gates and a path with which they are leading. He gives us contrasting descriptions of these two paths. One path is wide as can be, and everyone is moving in that particular direction. They're moving with ease. There's no resistance. I have nothing to compare it to. I would compare it to the 401, but no one moves on that. But you know what I mean. It's one of these things where once you're there, you're progressing and moving. You're going with the flow. It seems like you were made to be there. It's easy. That's one gate. It's, it's, its pathway is that way. The other gate is narrow, and it is difficult, and there are few on that pathway. Jesus is saying true spirituality, the type of life-giving spirituality of his kingdom, the, the spirituality which will cause you to flourish and to know the peace and love of God in ways that you currently don't is going to feel like being on a path that no one else is on. And it's going to feel like you're going uphill. It's difficult. But when you get to that gate, it's going to lead to flourishing life. It narrows, but once you get inside that gate, then you're going to find so many ways in which you can truly live and truly come alive and truly experience the blessings of God. Jesus is saying all of our lives are heading in a particular direction. They're a journey. There's no, no surprise. It's almost impossible not to pick up a book. I mean, it's not like Tolkien just invented this, all these journey novels. Of course, of course, because our lives start somewhere and they end somewhere. They're all moving in some particular direction. We're all on some kind of quest, and Jesus is saying we need to examine the destination that we're headed towards. Which gate are you headed towards? First door is wide. It's the path of least resistance. The crowds will just carry you along. And yet, as you get through this wide and wonderful gate with crowds uh, pushing you forward, you will find it incredibly restrictive and destructive on the other side. Jesus is saying true spirituality is going to feel like walking on that difficult path. And what that means is that though there is a narrow gate that we're to aim towards as his kingdom people, a narrow way to be his people in this particular kingdom, it means that from, a very, very, uh, from the very beginning of our spiritual life, all the days of our life, we're going to have to constantly be recalibrating, saying, are we off? Or are we, are we headed towards the right path? You see, if you're, you know, an inch off uh, of orbit, as a spaceship takes off, you know, if it's just an inch off in orbit, it's going to miss its destination altogether. Jesus is saying that way is narrow. And so what it means to practice true spirituality is to make sure that you are aiming for, headed towards the right gate. And when you fail, when you see that you've, you've veered off, you're heading off course, that you recalibrate very, very quickly so that you don't end up on that path of least resistance, that destructive path that feels almost natural. If our goal at the end is this kingdom of heaven, this place where life unending is found, this place where Jesus has talked about, 
where our enemies are finally put in their place and our great enemy of death and destruction is undone and rendered powerless. If that's where we are aiming toward, the door that gets you there is a very, very small door. It seems narrow. The way is very hard. But you have to live a life of intentionality. You have to be clear where you're aiming. If this is where you want to end up, you can't go with the flow. You'll never end up there. This is what Jesus is trying to say. Maybe I could illustrate some of what it feels like this way. Um, a couple of, actually Sam, he just read, and I feel like I can make a joke about him. Um, you know, I went to a wedding, Sam and Caitlin's wedding, a couple of weeks ago, and I had the, um, that experience when you're out of gas, when you're dressed up nicely to go to a wedding and you have to get gas. And I don't know, maybe it's just in my head, actually, as I was thinking of, as I was writing this out, I, don't, I thought, man, that'd be really weird if no one else feels this way. Um, but it's very few times in my life I've been overdressed at the gas station, you know? But you're pumping gas with a suit on and it just feels wrong. You know, it's like people are staring at you saying, look at you, you know, all dressed up to go get gas. Shouldn't you have a chauffeur? Uh, you feel completely out of place, you know. And, of course, every time this happens, you know, the card doesn't work and you have to go inside and manually do it. You just feel incredibly out of place. Who goes to a gas station with a tie on, you know, dressed nice? You feel very awkward. And yet this is something of a picture of the Christian life because I felt incredibly awkward at the gas station, but that was momentary. I, I, I was dressed fitting for the place, my final destination, where I was heading. And this is the Christian life. There will be times, students, I'm telling you, I've looked down this hallway at, at some of the posters you'll see hanging around. There is going to be times where you just don't feel like you fit in. You feel like you're wearing a suit at a gas station. But the way is narrow, and it is hard. But I'm telling you, and Jesus is telling you, the path, the, this restrictive path is going to lead to life unending, where you're going to find out what it truly means to flourish and to be human where all your wills and wants and desires find, uh, all your desires are fulfilled and they actually promote the good of your neighbor and the good of your relationship with God. Jesus is saying that this is what it's like and because of that we need to constantly be examining the destination we're going to. Are you dressed for the wedding? Are you dressed for the gas station? You know what I mean? And this is what Jesus is going after. He's saying true spirituality will result in a constant examination of the destination of our life. Where are we headed? If we were to look at the way we spent our money this past year, what would it tell us our greatest priorities are, our greatest needs are? If we were to do an audit somehow, some way of our calendar, if someone else, I recently had the unfortunate experience of sharing my calendar with Susie, who's working as the administrator now, and it was kind of this embarrassing moment where I thought, well, I probably should delete a couple of these things. I don't want to, I'm a little embarrassed by how busy my life is with foolish things, silly things. Where is our life heading? The true spirituality is going to be found in saying, I want to end up at the kingdom of heaven. I want to dress accordingly. I don't care if I feel out of place from time to time at the gas station. And I need to, at time to time, look in the mirror and realize that I must recalibrate. I'm veering off course. I must recalibrate. If I want to be one of, of the people that reside and fit in this kingdom, I must go back to the Sermon on the Mount. I must figure out what it looks like to be these particular, the people who make it, who go forward. Now, why is the way described as narrow? Is Jesus just being mean? I don't think he is. I think he's describing the way as narrow is because the only way through that narrow gate is to go against what feels like your very nature, to go against what feels like your very instincts, which is to try your best to save yourself. This is the course of the world that you'll get so quickly caught up in, so quickly swept out with the tide trying to rescue yourself, save yourself. You know, one of the greatest dangers for a lifeguard as it relates to saving somebody that is drowning 
is the person who's drowning not realizing they're drowning and kicking and fighting and doing their best and ultimately becoming destructive to the one that is trying to save them. Jesus is saying the way is narrow because the one who gets properly rescued is the one who comes to the ends of themselves and realizes on their own they will sink and destroy and die. And so in a moment of sheer sanity, which looks like insanity to the watching world, they, they surrender. They say to Jesus, rescue, save me, deliver me. And they quit frolicking and kicking and screaming. This is why it's narrow. It's abnormal. It's unnatural. It's very, very, very difficult. And yet, this is the gate. This surrendering, turning from your striving, turning from your sins and your attempts to win over a favor before your God, and trusting in Christ, it it is this restrictive narrowness which is going to lead to your greatest flourishing. What do you have in your life right now if your calibration's off? In what ways are you examining your schedule, your calendar, your money, your friendships, your work goals? Who trust, who do you trust enough, and who have you entrusted yourself enough to that they could challenge you and call you out? Jesus is saying this, true spirituality, life-giving experientiality will always, always mean daily, maybe hourly, viewing our life as a quest and saying what is the destination we're heading towards. But it's not just that. We also must examine the influences in our lives, and we see this really from uh, verse 13 all the way down to verse 23. You see, in verse 15, we read that Jesus is giving a very a clear warning to a specific group of people. Who is it? You can see it in verse 15, to false prophets. And then he, he, tells, he gives his very clear warnings. He gives another warning, and he ends by describing these people who are going to ultimately receive this great, great and horrible ending to their life as workers of lawlessness. You see, Jesus' warning, I believe, in verses 15 through 23, specifically false teachers, and this is no small deal. I can't tell you how much of my Christian life, especially my younger Christian life, I found myself utterly terrified by this phrase, I never knew you. Jesus is especially telling us to watch out for the influences that are in our lives, and he is going directly after false teachers, false prophets, who are like starving wolves, who have no other thing to do but to devour those that are in front of them. They might be starved for notoriety, power, attention, wealth, any of these things. Jesus is saying, watch out. Those influences are in your life and in your world, and they will bring about your destruction. You see, Jesus gives us warnings as to how we can learn uh, the influences we ought to have in our lives. He gives us instructions. How are we to know who ought to influence us? Is it their orthodoxy and their theology? Well, not really. Not really, because what do they say? They say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. They're orthodox. They call Jesus by the right name, and they even say it with passion, not just once, Lord, but Lord, Lord. And it's not even by their service that we'll know whether or not these are good influences in our lives, because some of these people will claim to prophesy in the name of Jesus. They will cast out demons and do mighty works. Seems like good influences, no? Jesus is saying this. You'll know them by their fruits, though. Now, some, some in this church are very good at identifying trees, If you want to know about a tree, ask Terry. Go outside, he'll tell you every tree that exists out there. He'll tell you exactly what species it is. I don't understand anything about trees, and the more I learn about them, the less I seem to know. But I do know one thing. When I see an apple growing on a tree, it's no mystery. It's an apple tree, okay? You know, this this is what Jesus is saying. You're going to know them by their fruits. that's, That's going to be the foolproof test, okay? You know, no one goes outside and looks at these big oak trees and says, is that a pear? 
Is that a pear tree? Is that a pineapple tree? No, of course not. You will know them by their fruits. And when you see a tree that is withering up and dying, you will know something about that tree, that it lacks life inside of it, that it doesn't have vitality pouring out of it. Nothing but thistles. Jesus is saying this is how we're going to know the type of influences we ought to stay away from. We're looking for people who are bearing fruit, people who do the will of Jesus' Father in heaven, as we see in verse 21. Ultimately, Jesus tells us that what these people are going to look like. If the false teachers hear, I never knew you, then what does that tell us about the true teachers? And they are known by Jesus. It's not as though their fruit gives them life. Hear me clearly. What Jesus is saying is, I know this one. This life of Jesus is pulsating through the roots of this tree system so that it will bear fruit. They are known by Jesus, and this is evident in the fruits they show. The power of the resurrection starts to leak through their pores, as it were, pulsates through their body, and they bear fruits of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience. Not big ministries, not even prophetic words to people in power. Patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the influences you ought to have in your life. Jesus is warning that there are false prophets in his time, and there will be false prophets until he returns. And it is very possible to be shaped by these people. Listen, as much as I loathe reading another story of another pastor who has a moral failure in the newspaper, and I wish these things didn't exist, they do make it abundantly clear to our stubborn hearts These were bad influences. We ought to stay away. You will know them by their fruits. This is what Jesus is saying. So I say to you, just because a book has a Christian publisher, just because the music says Christian things, be very careful. Marks of true spirituality will look like being very careful about the influences that are over your spiritual life. And the invitation is extended to you. If you don't see the life of the Spirit pulsating through the life of the leaders in this church, I would hope you'd do us the courtesy of calling us out on it. But don't waste your time being influenced by people who are not bearing marks, the fruit of the Spirit. True spirituality is going to look like examining your destination, examining your influences. Thirdly, now it's going to say, Let's ex- we, we ought to examine our foundation we're building on. Where do we see this? Well, it's a very familiar story. If you grew up in the church, you know, the wise man builds his house on the rock. Foolish man builds his house on the sand. At the end of the day, the houses don't look much different. You can build a pretty similar structure on sand and on rock, at least as it relates to an ordinary house. What reveals the difference in the foundation? The season of flooding. Through difficulties, catastrophes, we find out there's a way to build a spiritual life on nothing but sand. And the first hardship that comes your way will wash out all that you've built. And yet there's another way to build a house on a rock where a flood comes and it does nothing. The house stands sturdy. Rock-solid foundation will be exposed on the last day. And Jesus is saying this. He doesn't make a mystery. How do we know we're building on rock? What does it mean to build on rock? This is so abstract, Jesus. What are you talking about? He says very clearly, the way you build on the rock is to hear these words of Jesus and to do them. To do them. I trust the Holy Spirit's been working in your life as as mine. 
that as we've reflected on this Sermon on the Mount, our lives are different because of this teaching of Jesus, that we've been changed. And I would hope it would be part of your Christian practice and spiritual practice, maybe to journal or maybe to tell a friend about the ways in which you have heard the words of Jesus and they've made you into a different person, changed you. This is how you will know you're practicing the type of spirituality that is built on a rock, that has deep and solid foundations, that can handle storms when they come. The storms won't be fun, but you can handle them. Hearing the words of Jesus and obeying, it doesn't actually mean that you'll be perfect. Of course not. In fact, hearing the words of Jesus will often mean you'll realize you've deviated off course, that you're building on sand, that you're failing at some front. But what do you do when that happens? Well, the same Jesus who said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, says to you, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You turn from these sins and you build deeper into a foundation in Christ. You find your hope in Christ, your forgiveness in Christ, and you, you strive and strive and strive by the Spirit's power to obey. And when you fail, what do you do? You get back up again, you dust yourself off, you turn from your sins, you trust in Christ, and you strive and strive and strive by the Spirit's power to obey. This is how you know you are building on rock. You see, what Jesus is saying is those who have met him in his word, those who hear his word and have met him, can't possibly, can't possibly hear these words and not be transformed by it. Maybe I could illustrate it this way, you know. If I showed up late to church one Sunday and ran up on stage and looked all frazzled and said, I'm very sorry, you know, very sorry, it's a very, very difficult day. My morning's been very complicated. You won't believe what happened. You know, I was walking to church, and a plane dropped from the sky. And, uh, you know, minor flesh wound, not a big deal, but uh, it hit me. And I got around it, but that's why I'm running late. I had to go change clothes. No, never say that. Why? Because being hit by a plane from the sky is far more traumatizing, far more transformative. It would ruin more than just being a couple minutes late. It would ruin your day. To be hit by this would change everything. And Jesus is saying, listen... My words are coming from heaven. What it means to be a human being is to be utterly disconnected from the ways of God and constant rebellion to the ways of God. And what I am saying to you is this. Something greater than a plane has fallen from the sky. Jesus Christ is God's very Son come to this earth in human flesh. He knows our ways in every way. Something bigger than a plane has crashed into your life. It is not possible to hear these words and not be changed by them. It's not possible. Something greater than a a plane has fallen. Listen, it's quite common now to speak of trauma, to have experienced trauma in life and trauma in the workplace. There's great research being done about trauma, but one of the problems with trauma is it's becoming trendy now. And so I've interviewed, I was talking to an individual about how easy it is to fake trauma in the HR world and get off of work, get out of workplace experiences. And so how do they diagnose someone with trauma properly and make sure they don't just say they have trauma, but they actually do indeed have experienced workplace trauma? What are they looking for? They're looking for the impact of trauma in their life. How has it affected you? Did it affect your sleep? Did it affect your relationships? Has it affected how you interacted uh, with with strangers? Has it affected how you interacted with technology? When these markers are there, you know that they have actually experienced something traumatic. What I'm saying is the words of Jesus come to us in something far greater but something far more beautiful than trauma. They unsettle and upset all that we thought was normal and right. They tell us we're off course and they tell us we've got to turn around and course correct. This is no, no small deal. This this shakes us up. But if you've heard these words of Jesus, and even if in the slightest bit you say, I think they're true, and you trust these words of Jesus, and you're being transformed by these words of Jesus, then you will be marked by change. Again, the change could be as simple as the fact that you now repent of things that you previously did with great delight and joy. But Jesus is saying, What we must examine is the foundation we're building on. And if Jesus is our foundation, 
we will be changed by Christ. Wise men build on rocks. Foolish men build house on the sand. The house looks entirely similar, but the difference comes when the storm comes. The words of Jesus and the ways in which you've built your life on the words of Jesus will sustain you through the darkest of times. They won't make them easy. They won't make them painless. It won't be somehow that you'll go through difficult storms of life and you'll be able to sing jolly praise songs the whole time with a smile on your face. No, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Some of us are going to suffer greatly as we age. Some are suffering greatly right now in chronic pain. Some of us are suffering because we long to get pregnant. It doesn't make these things easier, but I'm telling you, a spirituality that is built off the Word of God is a sure and steady foundation. It will sustain you. It will sustain you. It will. And it will transform you through major storms of life. It must be clear, Jesus in no way is saying, in no way, that somehow us being changed by his word is what saves us. It's always his word that saves us. This is just simply a marker. Jesus is the rock, the one that we cling to, and as we cling to him, we find ourselves secure and solid. Don't be so foolish that you seek to find ways to change in hopes that if you could find ways to change, then you could convince yourself you're actually clinging to Christ. No, you've got it all wrong. That'd be as dumb as driving and staring at your windshield the whole time you're driving and wondering why you got in an accident. Look to Christ. Hold on to Christ, and you'll find yourself transformed by this. Now, maybe I conclude, conclude this way. Let's say, uh, I don't think the Jays are playing today, but let's say the Jays are playing down at the Rogers Center, though. And in conclusion to all we've heard from Jesus, this, this might be a fitting way to illustrate this. The Jays are playing, and I want to get in, and I want to see the game, and I want to sit in some good seats. And I go down, and I hatch a plan. I say to the security guard, you know what? Uh, there's this guy. You may have heard of him. His name's Vladimir Guerrero. I happen to know him. 27. You know, I know exactly what he looks like. I can even mimic his, his motions as he steps in the batter's box. I, I know him actually pretty well, to be honest with you. I can even do his throwing motion. I know his ritual right before the ball's pitched. Uh, I know him. Uh, how do you think the security guard would treat me? You know, he'd say, well, of course, that's cute. That's cute. But you're not coming in. But how different would it be if as I'm sitting there talking to the security guard saying, hey, I know him, 27, blue shirt, always wears that blue shirt. Sometimes it's white, mostly blue. You know, does the batting gloves. How different would my interaction with the security guard be if Vladimir Guerrero was there on the other side and says, Pastor Kyle, <laughs> I know you. How different would my interaction be with that gatekeeper? It'd be utterly transformed. This very fearful passage that the false prophets will hear, begging to Jesus, Jesus, I, I, I remember the jersey you wore. Oh, oh. You remember when that double play? You remember that, Jesus? But to hear him say, I never knew you on that great day of judgment is a fretful thing. But the hope of the gospel is this. As surely as you hear my voice, and I hope you hear the words of Christ, when you cling to Christ on that last day, what you'll hear is this. I know this one. I know her. I know him. This one's mine. In fact, I gave my very life for this one. I have surplus in my account. They can come in on my tab. This one is my daughter, my child, my citizen. And on that last day, that fearful last day, those who have built true and solid spirituality on the rock of Christ, who are aiming for that narrow gate, who are mindful of the influences that could, could push us and pull us another way, they will hear Jesus say, I know you. And in knowing you, 
though it's going to feel like a strive to get to that narrow point, to that difficult gate. It's going to include a lot of repentance, a lot of failure. It's going to include a lot of commitments to change that don't actually stand up and getting back on the path and doing it again and again and again. But no one's going to question whether it's worth it when you hear Jesus say, I know this one. They built on the rock. Come into my land of flourishing. This is the hope of the gospel. I hope this morning you've heard Jesus' words to you today. Let's pray. Our Father, we've learned so much from the Sermon on the Mount, from the words of your Son, Jesus. And there's no greater word that we want to hear than to know Jesus says to us, I know you. Would you send your Spirit down now powerfully for those who have no knowledge of Christ, that they might know Christ, and in knowing Christ, they might realize that they actually have been known by him, that he has been beckoning them and calling them up to this point. And for those of us who do call Christ our hope, Though we have a long life ahead of us of striving, of laboring towards the narrow gate, would you send your spirit to strengthen us, and would you give us the confidence in knowing that we are known by Christ? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.